0: This is Life Made Better, a podcast from two coaches with a zest for not only their lives, but yours. In this series, Fleur and Lucia seek out tips, tools and exercises to inspire you to achieve your dreams and goals.
1: Join us and let's make life better. Welcome back to Life Made Better, the podcast where we interview interesting people that not only inspire us, but so that we can learn from their story and challenges. I'm very excited about today's guest. Jules is a mum of two children. She's a qualified creative arts therapist and runs EQ prep in a local primary school. Her intention in setting up EQ prep was to help primary school aged children to recognise, understand and manage their feelings. We know that by developing emotional intelligence, children are able to maintain good mental health, even at times of crisis and to stay calm when faced with worry and fear. It is so lovely to have you here today, Jules. I'm sure, knowing you, you'd rather be helping others than talking about yourself. (laughs) So feel really privileged that you've come to share a bit of your journey and your insights. And I'm sure our audience would love to hear more about you and what led you to setting up
2: EQ prep. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here. Yeah, it is very strange to be talking about myself rather than to be talking to other people. And uh, that's a really good reflection as a therapist, I think, sometimes to recognise that it is quite hard and you take that for granted when you listen to people every day. So uh, this is a very good uh, CPD exercise for me as well. So thanks. (laughs) Um, I mean, I could could talk to you forever about the journey that took me to, to getting here, but the reason that, that I set it up was was simple, that I was seeing a lot of teenagers in private practice who were having mental health crises and they were often incredibly bright, articulate young people. And they just didn't have the skills to be able to recognize and understand and regulate their emotions. And a lot of these kids were coming to me really too late. They had been through the process of their parents noticing something was wrong spending those six months that you do as a parent, trying to ignore it, hoping that it will go away. Then you go to your GP and your GP says, you know, don't worry, it'll probably be fine, This is completely normal, but if you have some problems, come back and then you go back and the GP refers you and CAMS is overrun and it takes six months to get your first appointment and then another six months to get your treatment site and it can be two, three years before you get a therapist in front of your child. And I realized that a lot of the problems would have been very simple if they'd been addressed head on right at the beginning. If parents had been given some information about how to help their children, if the kids had some skills to be able to manage the everyday ups and downs of life. And that it would be really great if we could get this into schools as early as possible. So I set up EQ prep because I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could get into children at reception age, work with them through primary school, and give them the skills that they need to manage the inevitable ups and downs that come as part of puberty, adolescence, secondary school. And ideally, this is the dream here, we can get to a point where the brilliant practitioners and mental health experts working in CAMS can be treating the people who desperately need that treatment and that the kids who are suffering from perhaps more minor mental health problems will have the skills they need to be able to manage this at home. That is beautiful, Jules. That honestly,
0: as a as a mum of two toddlers, one of them starting school this year, and somebody that has ever been a lover of, of feelings and emotions and embracing them, this is music to my ears. That could not be more excited about that, because I think you know it's true. Um, and obviously I come from a Spanish background, which I think uh, in many ways is very similar and everywhere, right? But. I think we've become, or we've grown up so used to the fact of repressing those feelings. Like you know, you fall down or you something doesn't go according to your plan, and you cry. And the immediate answer from the grown ups is, "Don't cry, it's okay." And now, obviously, as a, as an adult, I'm able to see that, but it is I want to cry, and it is not okay. And I think embracing that as adults as and as children and understanding that that is the right feeling to be had and how to deal with it is so very important that I am so pleased that you're doing that. So thank you. Thank you as an adult and as a mum for doing this.
2: Of course. And you're, you're right. It is important that children learn that it's okay to feel whatever the feeling is. But I think the other side to that is it's not something that comes naturally to everybody. And I think that's the other thing. You know, we, we wouldn't put a child, uh, you know, it, on a netball uh, court and expect them to be able to play a team netball without some skills. And you wouldn't expect them to learn a language without learning how to do it. And the reality is you have to learn. A lot of children have to really learn how to find the words to express themselves, and how to develop skills to be able to manage difficult emotions. It doesn't always come naturally. And it's not necessarily up to teachers to be able to do that. You know, teachers have got enough on their plate already. And for some parents, it's natural and it's easy. But if you haven't had a good emotional education yourself, in the same way that if you haven't had a positive experience of childhood, it's very difficult to then go on and give your children a positive experience of childhood without help and support. The same is true here. And that's what we do, right? That's the skills that we've learned. And and I feel particularly well placed because of my different therapeutic qualifications and all of the skills that I've kind of developed in my slightly jigsaw puzzly pieces of life to be able to go in and work creatively with kids I'm a drama therapist that's my primary training I used to be an amateur performer of sorts I went to drama school I've done a lot of creative work throughout my career and I think to be able to use those skills to help young children to develop the um, emotional intelligence to be able to cope with the ups and downs of life is is really exciting
1: yeah and I think that you're working with young children they're so much more malleable at that stage because they're developing they expect to be learning everything and like you said when you get uh, a teenager at 14 that can't manage their emotions and they've got all these huge emotions they feel very stuck and they, they they find it hard to get out of that stuckness Whereas if you get them when they're early on and they know that these emotions are normal it's part of being human and we can learn tools to help us manage them, then they are already in a great place when difficult things happen. So I think this is so needed in schools and I wish that more schools could have qualified therapists who really understand that childhood development. So I mean, total hats off you, off to you, to seeing what these young children needed and and getting in there at the beginning and not when they're feeling broken is is you know music to my ears because I am also getting teenagers come to me who are feeling very overwhelmed, very stuck, and don't know how to get out of that because they've already built coping mechanisms that are very unhelpful. Mm.
0: And I think you've presented two challenges there which are worth flying because obviously uh, as parents we've got a role in educating the feelings and the emotions of our children, but not every parent has the ability or has the skills to do that. So I guess one part of the question is how as a parent can you upskill yourself or how, you know, what are the best ways in which you can help your child in that way? And then obviously the second part is when you come to realise that your child may have that problem, what would you suggest are the best ways or the best next steps to follow?
2: So one of the uh, services that we offer in the school that we work in is parent coaching and the opportunity to be able to sit down with parents and give them some tips and tools for how best to work with their kids so i'm just going to rewind a little bit my original training was in drama therapy and i worked for kids company for many years and running therapeutic provisions in primary schools there and i was working with really vulnerable children and it was it was great it was really important work but ultimately you're sending these kids back into their families and if you don't work holistically systemically if you don't work with everyone involved in this child's life you're not going to give them the best outcome because it's no good if they know how to manage things themselves. If they're six years old and going home and nobody's supporting that learning, it's, it's, it's no good, right? So it's really important to work with parents as well as with kids. So a lot of the work that I do is encouraging parents to come to us early doors. So as soon as you have a concern, to flag it, because there is no such thing as a problem that is too small it is great when i have the opportunity to say to a parent it's okay don't worry about it this is completely normal it's absolutely fine that your six-year-old is behaving in this way keep an eye on it if things still become problematic come back to me that's a wonderful thing to be able to do but actually what is even better is to be able to say let's think about some constructive things that you can do as a family together to be able to help your child yeah so the first thing i would say is there's no problem that's too small If you're worried about something, if it's significant enough for you to be concerned about it and for you to have noticed it is a problem for you or your child, it's a problem. There may be an easy solution. Let's try and handle it together. The next thing is to say to name it to your child. I think sometimes we're very frightened about saying out loud what our concern is because it might make it worse. And it doesn't make it worse to name it to a child. Obviously, we have to not shame our child or make them feel anxious about it. But just to be able to say... I notice that this behavior is creeping in, or I notice that this has been happening more often these days. And then just to be curious about what the child says about it. If you have a child who finds it difficult to articulate their feelings, they could do it in a picture, they could show you how they feel. I also encourage parents to choose the moment that they raise these things really carefully. Before bed is never the time to do it. It is A really good idea to try and do it while you're doing something else so with older children while you're driving them to school or while you're on a walk or while you're busy and with younger children perhaps if they're colouring or actively engaged in another activity because it makes it slightly less confrontational and therefore easier to to broach the topic I think.
1: Can you explain to parents why before bed is really not a good idea?
2: It's like the therapeutic door handle moment, right? You guys must know this, that you've had a session. It's been like wading through mud. Nobody said anything of any significance. And you're just about to leave and they've got their hand on the door handle and suddenly out comes this vital piece of information. And you think, oh my goodness, if you'd said that to me 45 minutes ago, we would have, you know, and it's the same with children. They tend to choose that moment just as you turn the lights out to say, You know, I had a really hard time at school today and something terrible happened. And as a parent, we need to resist the urge to go there in that moment, because all that happens is the anxiety levels, cortisol levels are raised. Everybody gets really stressed. Nothing is solved. And then nobody sleeps really well. So it's a really good idea to encourage children to choose other moments to speak. And this is a great parent skill is to be able to say to your child, I hear that this is upsetting you or troubling you or that this happened to you today and we're going to talk about this but right now it's bedtime so you're going to go to sleep and tomorrow what i don't know whatever time it is that's suitable for you we're going to have an opportunity to revisit this and then go there then and this is a skill i teach teachers a lot as well that it can feel overwhelming if your child or if somebody in your class Comes to you with something, and you think, "Oh, I can't deal with this right now." It's fine to say, "I hear you, I see you, and this is when we're going to talk about it."
1: Yeah, I think it's such an important message to give to the audience. It's about them being heard, still hearing you, we're still listening to you, but this is not the right time because, like you said, they're tired, we're tired, and when they're anxious, they don't sleep. Only this morning, a parent said this to me, oh, it's really good that my daughter talks to me at the end of the day, you know, just before she's going to sleep. And I went, I-, I don't think that is a good time because you're opening up Pandora's box just before you want them to rest. So tell them you hear them, but make sure that you do tell them the time that they, what you are going to discuss it. At a better time when everyone's energy is level, is able to
2: unpick the problem. And also it's teaching a really important life skill, an emotional intelligence skill, which is this feels overwhelming, but I can cope with that feeling of overwhelm and I can come back to it and manage it at a future time because one, it might just go away. And two, if it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference because I can deal with this tomorrow. So again, in a classroom situation, a lot of teachers tell me that children come in after play and they've got a queue of children by their desk wanting them to know about the terrible thing that happened at lunchtime and they're unable to contain that feeling. And being able to contain difficult feelings is a key tool of emotional intelligence but also just to to add to that there are techniques that you can use at bedtime if that feels not good enough so teaching children about writing things down and putting them in worry jars or talking to worry a worried doll before they go to sleep at night or having some calming activity before bed I'm a bit boring on this topic, but, you know, we're very good with toddlers about having routines at bedtime. But that routine at bedtime is something that we need to carry on for our entire lives, including into adulthood. And just because your child appears to be absolutely fine at getting themselves to bed in the evening doesn't mean that it's not really important still to have that hour forty five minutes before bed when they 're doing something that 's calm and that's something that 's consistent and something that feels safe because that helps them to transition into sleep, which is absolutely vital developmentally yeah
1: sleep is key to all of us isn't it? So you know having that hour is something we always work with with our clients. <laughs> you know, until you've got the sleep piece, right? It's very, very hard to repair, you know, and heal from the day and, you know, feel that you can cope with the next day. And I often pick up the next, the problem with my daughters um, the next day and I'll say, you know, what you, you spoke to me about last night and they come up with all the solutions and they're absolutely fine in the morning because they are just at a different energy level, you know, and a different logic they can access their logic they're not over emotional at that stage so you know like, like you said a lot of these problems can be sorted out in a in a, in a better space when they've had some sleep
0: <laughs> yeah I mean obviously um, we are all aware of that importance of bed, of bedtime, but playing devil's advocate uh, and I wanted to be Pandora's box but if a child comes to you when that is a worry for them is the non-acceptant element to say okay let's let's cover it just so they feel invited to carry on bringing those problems to the table and feel heard and listened regardless
2: of when that moment comes um, I understand that concern and I think that's part of the parental drive to kind of make everything okay for your child in the immediate moment. And we all feel that as parents that wouldn't it be great if we could just wave a magic wand and all the problems would go away. But the reality is... We can't do that. And I think the older they get, the more clear that becomes. And so the importance of teaching them the tools to be able to just hang on long enough to be able to solve the problem is greater. And the the key thing is about being heard. That's the most important thing. It's not dismissing your child or making them feel like you don't have time or it's not okay to talk to you. It's about saying, I hear you. I see you. And right now it's bedtime, so let's talk about this at a time where we can manage
1: it. Yeah, and I I have a very anxious child, and I also find, you know, saying I've seen you, I heard you, but also just giving her that physical contact of a cuddle for five or ten minutes calms her system down enough for her to be able to say, I can deal with it in the morning. It's something about the touch for her is so important.
2: Absolutely, and often... Um, anxious children are very bright there is I mean they they often are overthinkers, you know and my experience with my own children is sometimes actually talking is counterintuitive because the more you go into it and the more they're analyzing and overthinking the more stimulated and enormous the problem becomes whereas actually as Fleur just said that hug that moment of calm and still and I see you I hear you And additionally, you're going to be okay. Right now, you feel like the world is out of control, but the feeling will pass and you will get to a place where you're okay. because that is another really important lesson that feelings come and go. I I talk to children about feelings being like the weather and you can't control it. Sometimes you can predict it, sometimes not. But the one thing we know for certain is that it changes all the time and it can be sunny in the morning and rainy in the evening and we just have to notice it. Okay, this is where I'm at right now and wait for it to pass.
0: Which I think is a beautiful, calming way of framing it and it's something that not just as children, as adults, can really relate to. So thanks for that analogy. I'm definitely definitely bringing it on board. (laughs) I want to ask you, kind of like... I think we've done a really good job at kind of painting the picture from a parent level, but I'm really interested in hearing from that path that you just named to us, how you bring that into schools and how much of a change that can make. Because also I think there's a certain element for a child in particular to fill in that safe space from somebody that is not your parents that in a way you can kind of feel might understand you better. So can you tell us a little bit more about that work and how you put that into schools and what are the plans for that?
2: Yeah absolutely so we've been developing this over the course of the last three and a half years I was really lucky to be invited into the study school in Wimbledon to run this program and they were incredibly brave about the way that they gave us free reign to develop a service that worked for the girls within the school and that is a huge privilege. I've worked in many many schools over the years and to have that blank canvas to be able to create something has been incredibly exciting and I'm really grateful to them for having allowed us to do that. I want to say that I am mindful of the fact that this has been developed in a private school, and in an independent school, and that the resources there are therefore very different. And, you know, moving forward, I need to think very carefully about how this can be rolled out more extensively because obviously it is not cheap to run something like this. But we have developed a whole school approach that's got lots of different strands to it. So we run creative. Drama based PSHE sessions in class for every child in the school from reception up to year six. We visit each class once a term, and I have written a a syllabus, an emotional intelligence syllabus that runs from reception up to year six. So we look at issues like values, friendships, anxiety, uh, conflict resolution. We think about uh, feelings with the very little ones, how to name them, how to recognize them. We look at different big topics and we work creatively Uh, and the teachers are present in those sessions and are there as witnesses, which is a really important part of this. So they see the girls responding to these emotional prompts and cues and are able to reflect on girls who perhaps they don't get the opportunity to really watch in that way while they're very involved. So that's one part of the programme. We also run drop-in chat sessions for the girls. So if they want to come and talk to us, they can put a little slip in the box and they're given a lunchtime appointment when they come and they talk to us and they have 15 minutes of confidential and by that I mean they can tell whoever they want that they've come to chat to us that I agree within all the boundaries of child protection so so long as nobody is in any danger that what they tell me is confidential but and this is really important because this is an in-school service I encourage actively the girls to share what they're bringing to me with their parents and with their teachers and try to explain to them that keeping problems secret is counterintuitive to solving them. So it is also a psychoeducation opportunity for me to explain how they can solve the problems themselves. We run staff trainings for teachers uh, in set sessions where we talk to them about topics either that they come to us and they say we could some help do with some help with this, um, or uh, topics like talking to children about death and dying. That's one that's been really successful, and how to work therapeutically in classrooms. Um, I do my parents sessions so parents can make appointments we're now doing that online and then finally I've written a peer mentor training program for the year six girls so they are taught about active listening curiosity uh, conflict resolution and the idea is they can then take that out into the playgrounds and and help solve problems themselves amongst their peers it's
1: amazing I mean as you know I've worked in schools for like 23 years and I can't tell you how much the emotional intelligence is is needed. So if you could get that into more schools, do you think that's a possibility to start rolling that out and presenting it to more schools?
2: I definitely think it is. I mean, we've now written this. It's taken a long time. You know, we've been trying things out, seeing what works, what doesn't work. And I think we have now created something that, that, that works as a an ongoing programme and that fits within the school day really well. So I think we are now at a point where it is definitely exportable and we can definitely put it in other schools. But, you know, schools have to want this work And it's not enough just to say, well, yeah, okay, we'd like it because it's trendy or fashionable to have mental well-being provisions in schools, because it's a big commitment, this work. It really is. You know, if you're inviting people to come in, you talked about Pandora's Box. It's not always easy to have therapists working in schools because... Stuff comes up you know when people are talking about emotions it can get difficult you know it it has it's a two-way process it's schools wanting us and us really believing that the schools want to do this work and are open to creating a program that can be embedded into their school system
1: we've got such a huge mental health problem now in our country that the government are going to have to start support in these type of programs to enable us to start working at root level because you know I, I had lunch with the one of the mums the other day who's a doctor and she said everybody now more or less that comes into my practice as a mental health problem so you know we're crying out for you know tools and people like you in schools presenting these kinds of programs yeah
0: I think it's one of the forgotten subjects, isn't it? Like everybody is very quick to put literature and history and mathematics. But mental health begins from a very early age, is there from the very beginning. And it's something that it needs to be educated. So I think the work that you're doing in bringing that to everyone's attention and especially to school is, you know, it's amazing. It's something to be very proud of, which I'm sure you are. But I've got a personal question on, on that level because obviously all these life-changing work that you're doing combined with being a full-time mum yourself, how do you do it? Where do you find the strength and the energy to combine these two amazing and very important uh, things that you're doing
2: in your life? I think that's a really pertinent question. I have had this conversation endlessly with other therapist mums and and i think i'd be interested in your thoughts on this it is very hard to do this work and also be a full-time mom, a mother, because you're being asked to carry an even bigger emotional load than you do at the best of times. And there were moments when I was working in private practice where I felt like I was having to put so much of myself into my client work that I was coming home and didn't have the capacity to be able to manage the emotional workload at home as well. And I do think it is an incredibly difficult balance to strike and I'm not sure that coaching and therapy actually sit terribly well with having very young children if I'm really honest I think it's very very hard but for me it's absolutely essential that I work that I do this thing that I do you know it's interesting when I had children my daughter i was very recently out of my therapeutic training it was only sort of five years afterwards and i had this absolute idea that i needed to be a stay-at-home mom you know everything that i had learned all of the developmental psychology all of the attachment theory everything i knew told me you just need to be at home with your children because that's the right thing to do and i and i was and i did and i was at home for a very long time with them and it's really difficult because whilst i i i do it I am a great supporter of child-centred learning, of attachment theory. I I love all these these ideas. They are models that centre around the needs of the child only without taking into consideration the needs of the mother. And we are all so different as human beings. And if as a mother, as was definitely the case for me as a human being, your intellectual stimulation your social life your drive your need to be engaged and with others if if that is strong and you're not fulfilling your own needs then your children are not going to do well out of you that's it's not good enough that you're just at home and that has been a big struggle for me is how you find that balance between being there enough so, so that basically i'm practicing what i'm preaching because that's kind of quite important right in the work that i do but also that I am fulfilling myself because when I am fulfilled and when I am busy and creatively engaged and intellectually stimulated, I'm a better mother.
1: Yeah, I had exactly the same challenges. It was a huge, it was the biggest thing I think I've overcome to come from a deputy head to being a full time mother, three kids at home, and not having that community around me, not having, you know, the stimulation, but also the, the energy and how, how it made my spirit feel that I was making a difference was such an identity change for me that, you know, I found it huge. So I can hear exactly what you're saying. And I feel like a lot of our listeners who are mums, you know, go through the same thing. We have such a pool between, you know, we know that being a a mum at home is so important but we also know that we have our own needs that need to be fulfilled in integrating I don't even like balance I don't think there is a balance but integrating both of them is work in progress all of the time but adding the guilt to it is not ever going to (laughs) help
2: I think it's really important to recognize that it's also okay to have wants and needs outside of motherhood and that that maternal guilt that it should be enough for you it's it can be enough you know but we are not all the same people and I find this need to kind of clump all mothers together in one great big ball and expect us all to have the same needs the same drives the same desires is insane it's not uh, reflective of of real life right and and really if i was talking to anyone right now about the choices that they're making over going back to work or staying at home whatever it's just do what is right for you because what is right for you will be right for your child
1: it's getting to really know yourself isn't it that self awareness of knowing i wish i'd known myself as well as i do now and that's just been through you know the last four years of you know being immersed into self development once you really know yourself, you know what's going to work for you, and then you can work your family and your life around you know, really being your values. And, you know, there's not a right and a wrong answer, it's what's right for you and your
2: family. And wouldn't it be amazing if, as women, we were told that that was okay as part of our psychoeducation at an earlier stage, that it's not selfish, you know. With the, um, the, the school where we're pilot, we piloted this project is an all-girls school, and I'm stunned at the ideas of selfishness or that it's wrong to think of your own needs. We need to change that, particularly for, for young women, this idea that it is wrong or bad or selfish or unkind to put your own needs first because actually nobody likes a martyr, right? Nobody likes that. And it's much better to just to be honest, say, well, this is what I need. And then maybe you need to negotiate beyond that, but then at least your cards are on the table and everyone's coming from a place of positive drives.
1: Yeah, otherwise the resentment, you, you know, I, I love my mom to death and she she decided to be a, a stay at home mum. also, ran businesses on the side. But there was a lot of guilt of, you know, I've given up everything for you. And that is not a, a nice feeling for a child to have to cope with. So that's why it's really important that we're honest about our needs and not just put everything into our children, because we do have needs. We're humans bringing up humans, and that is not an easy task.
0: And I think there's a third
1: certain danger
0: that comes with the labeling. I, I am personally not a big fan of labeling. In the sense that, as you were saying, Jules, you tried to put everyone in, in one bucket and it's not the truth. And to be honest, I cringe sometimes at the term I'm a mum and I'm a working mum because there is a certain assumption of because you're a mum, you don't do this, because you're a mum, you should not be wanting to do that. And yes, I am a mum, but I'm also Luthier. And I've got these many layers I'm a mum, I'm a friend, I'm a daughter. I'm a lover, I'm a free spirit, I'm a creative. So I'm form of these many different layers and many different labels, if you wish. And just because at some times in my life, I relate to this one, doesn't mean I end up being the others. And I think there's a lot of deeper work, which I'm sure we can do another podcast about it, (laughs) um, about understanding that when you do become a mom, it doesn't mean that you are less you, let's call it. And I think... You know, bringing that awareness in the way that you've just done is something very important and it's something that we must not forget. So, you become that better person and that better role model for your children when you're in alignment and attuned to yourself. Yeah. Beautiful.
1: <laughs> so, Jules, thank you for joining us today. But one of our favorite questions and we're not going to let you get away with this one (laughs) because we know we've gone off piece quite a lot, is can you sum up in one sentence how you have made your life better?
2: A little bit of EQ goes a long way.
1: (laughs) So the emotional intelligence
2: has been key to your being able to navigate your life. I genuinely think that it has because when things have gone wrong, I have sought help and When things have felt unmanageable, I have known that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think it has enabled me to be hopeful and to stay with the difficult feelings.
0: That is so beautiful and so powerful. Another one of the nuggets of the conversation I'm bringing home and taking with me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jules. It's, it's definitely been an amazing and very, very powerful conversation, which I'm sure is going to be touching many of our listeners. So please tell us where they and, and us can, can reach out to you. Can, where can we find you?
2: I am trying to share tips and ideas and thoughts about developing emotional intelligence in kids through Instagram, so I'm at Juliette Oakshet lots of teas in that one. And I started over lockdown, making little Dear Jules YouTube videos for kids that I uh, haven't done actually for a little while, but I'm going to go back to them again. If you look up Jules Oakshed on YouTube, you'll find some little videos that I made in response to the questions that the girls were asking me when I wasn't able to see them face to face. So those are more child appropriate little videos, with some ideas about things to do. And if you are interested in finding out more about the work that I do or in contacting me directly, then my website is julietteoakshett.co.uk and you can find all of my contact details there.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, we'll put that in the comments. And I know I have a funny relationship with social media too, but it is a way of getting word out and helping people. And I always think every time I put a bit of content out, if it helps one person, then it's worth <laughs> it's worth the pain. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming and sharing today. That's been I'm sure so helpful for so many parents and so many women as well on their journey. And thank you to our listeners again for joining us for one more week. Thanks for showing us your love and appreciation. And please share. The podcast and anyone you think will benefit from it leave a comment and subscribe and we will look forward to seeing you next week and in the meantime stay well stay safe stay motivated much love